Hi everyone, welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. Today is February 20th, 2019. Today we're gonna to talk about Israel and the relationship between Israel and Japan once again. During our last episode of Mission Japan, we were honored to have the ambassador to Israel. And today I'd like to welcome from the Simon Weisenthal Center in Los Angeles, Rabbi Abraham Cooper. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. You're in Tokyo very frequently. You're talking to people at all levels of government. You are a champion of the downtrodden. You represent the Simon Weisenthal Center on Human Rights Issues. I've seen you in the newspaper, in the New York Times. You are a prominent, I mean, you're, you're one of the top rabbis in the world. I wouldn't go that far, but I am a troublemaker. Yes. Originally, <laughs> originally from New York. And, uh, you know, I represent an institution that's based on the Asia Pacific Rim, the Simon mm -hmm. Weisenthal Center is based in Los Angeles. And so what goes on in the neighborhood, including and especially our democratic uh, allies and trading partners here in Japan, has always been very important for us. You got an early start. I mean, you, you grew up in Brooklyn. When you were 23, you went to Russia. I don't know why your mother let you go to Russia at that, but this was, this was a critical period and, and kind of helped launch your career. You've been at the forefront of, of you know, championing these issues of, you know, uh, the Israelis, the Jews, and how, how they are um, kind of besmirched by certain pockets in, in Japan and also all around the world. Yeah, it's been a really amazing experience to visit here since 1985. We've come a very, very long way. But I think for some of the Japanese elite, uh, including people who probably never actually meet a Jew, I think the idea of a Jew Mm -hmm. Not the reality. I've never been accosted, been here 40 times. You can walk out 2 o'clock in the morning. No one's going to say, oh, there goes a Jew or a rabbi. Let's go get him. It's mm -hmm. the safest place to walk. But the idea of uh, another who you don't really fully understand, and uh, many Jews are quite prominent, involved in uh, economics, in diplomacy, uh, in business. So uh, I think there's been a lot of mystery around mm -hmm. surrounding Jews. And especially one particular book, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, a czarist screed written in the end of the 19th century that accuses Jews of uh, conspiracies to take over the world. Mm -hmm. That's embedded itself culturally here for quite a long time. No, apparently uh, that caught fire here and a lot of people ascribe to it because they think it's a, it's a cool conspiracy theory. It seems to make sense. You know, the Jews have all the money, they had all the diamonds, they got all the gold, and of course they're, they're ruling the world. And of course Jews and Zionists like uh, the late Tip O'Neill, Al Gore, mm -hmm. Rockefeller. I mean, for those of us who deal with uh, real problems of anti-Semitism where there are significant Jewish populations, this seems almost like a sideshow. But uh -huh. Japan's very important, uh, not only in the region, but globally. Uh, and I've always felt that uh, we could be part of a solution here by replacing stereotypes and introducing who we are, what our values are. And I would say that over the course now of three decades, I'm not taking all the credit for it, there's been, I think, a seismic shift mm -hmm. in terms of, first of all, understanding uh, who the Jewish people are. No, we don't go to synagogue uh, or temple uh, to plot the economic downfall of Japan. And also there are, um, I would say, some fundamental values that we both share. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot to learn. It's a huge learning curve, but for many, many reasons, but especially in including that today Japan is a strong democracy. We know one thing, democracies don't go to war with each other. Right. And uh, while we need profound uh, help in cultural interpretation, this program being one of them, 
Um, it is very important for us to make that effort. And over the years, we've, we've found some really great people here. You know, the thing that strikes me is the, the relationship between Israel and Japan. It's really a long history, and a lot of it is clouded in mystery and myth. But even after um, Israel retained independence, the first diplomatic relationship between in the Middle East was between Israel and Japan, I mean, 1952. Right. It was uh, quite, I think, an amazing moment. Uh, Japan was really yet to get back on its feet fully right. after World War II, but it was beginning the process of uh, taking its place uh, among the nations of the world. And uh, Israel was the, the old new country, mm -hmm. 3,000 years old, and Three years after uh, Auschwitz and the death camps and gas chambers, 1948, the modern state of Israel comes about. So the good news is that that diplomatic uh, connection was made early. On the other hand, it's been a rocky road over these decades. One of the things that I think our viewers would appreciate a little bit of an understanding on is you can live in Japan for many years and you'll run into Mormons, you'll run into Catholics, you'll run into Protestants, but it is quite rare to run into somebody who, who is a Jewish and, and, and you don't always have the, the hat or you know the, the long beard and the... The, the tzitzis, right. Right. So, but, but there are, it, it, there's a huge community here and it's important and it's involved in a lot of things. and. Um, you know, why, why is it not more apparent to, to people and why is it not more actively engaged? Well, the numbers, I think, are probably under 2,000, so it's not huge, but you do have a Jewish community center. You have the a fantastic group known as Chabad, the Hasidic Jews, mm -hmm. uh, who've, uh, I think, made a real impact here. Uh, historically, Kobe is an important uh, venue for the Jewish people. They found initial safe haven running away from the Nazis before many of them made their way to Shanghai. So um, nonetheless, uh, other than reading about Jews or seeing a Jewish sounding name or maybe meeting someone in a business uh, mm -hmm. a venture, you don't really get that opportunity for significant interaction unless you go overseas and representing Japan either diplomatically or yourself working for a major company or going to school. Mm -hmm. There's not enough of that uh, uh, impact. Today, things are changing uh, because the state of Israel and Japan, you have many more tourists uh, coming, and maybe even more significantly, uh, after losing its way, Japan has now, I think, gained its uh, mojo in terms of potential economic deals and uh, investments in the Jewish state. It is incredible, the, the number of delegations that are coming, especially related to high-tech and science, uh, numerology, cryptology, that sort of thing. It's just, it, it's, it's probably been going on um, at, at some volume, but it just seems recently it's, it's really blossomed and increased. It, it really has blossomed. And you know, what's also interesting, uh, we Jews are known to have a very long memory about our enemies, but what's lesser known is how much we revere uh, people who step forward to help us when we were down. Mm -hmm. So right. believe it or not, you can draw a straight line between some of these developments and the great story of Chinue Sugihara who uh, made a decision back in 1940 as a Japanese diplomat and saved uh, over 3,000 Jews from certain death. And uh, his name, actually, I think he was a Jewish hero long before the Japanese people came to understand why he should also be a Japanese hero. So despite all of the problems uh, that have uh, sometimes plagued us, there's mm -hmm. a deep reservoir of goodwill uh, from the point of view of the Jewish world and Israel. 
uh, and Japan. And I think the more that people get to actually just interact, especially younger people, mm -hmm. I think uh, it could really uh, take off. And again, I want to emphasize the realities are that because Japan absented itself for so many years uh, in terms of investments and interactions and academic, the Chinese are way ahead of the yep. game. However, we know one thing. It's something that Mr. Wiesenthal himself said. Where democracy is strong, it's good for Jews. And where it's weak, it's bad for Jews. Japan's the strongest democracy here in Asia. And that is part of the reason uh, why I think, you know, Israelis have just been chomping at the bit. When are we going to be able to create those kind of synergies mm -hmm. so we can move on and build on it? And uh, speaking personally, I'm quite optimistic. You know, there are, there are great signs of more uh, change and, and better relations. There's now a direct flight between uh, Japan and Israel. Um, that's, that's relatively recent. One of the things that strikes me as somewhat odd is this relationship between Israel and the foreign ministry and Israel and the prime minister. Uh, the prime minister is a, a known advocate of Israel. He's a good friend of, of Israel. He's, he's visited Israel before. He has a good relationship with Netanyahu. Um, but the foreign ministry, uh, led by Mr. Kono, has uh, uh, apparently a different drift on that. And I don't quite understand that. Can we go into that without yeah, uh, offending I, people's I, uh, sensibilities? I, I think it's, it's worthwhile. First of all, let's, uh, since we, we, both of us, uh, are involved in the sport of knocking politicians at every opportunity. Let's say something good okay. about two of them. Uh, Prime Minister Abe and Prime Minister Netanyahu deserve tremendous credit. They've, they've transformed the relationships, the stuff that we can see publicly, right. and some of the things involving North Korea, Iran, etc., that we don't see. But I think the thing that really changed the, the uh, dynamics of the relationship was the speech that uh, Mr. Abe gave at Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem. That speech was a tremendous signal to the Jewish world that we were dealing with a friend who understood the psyche of the people. And um, it, it really, um, I think, changed the hearts and minds of a lot of people in the Jewish world, myself in included. Now, uh, Farm Mr. Kono is a, a, you know, a very seasoned uh, veteran politically and diplomatically. He has taken a, a special interest in the, the Palestinians. Nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But the concerns that we have uh, with Japan, with Germany, uh, after uh, President Trump vacated the finances for the UNRWA, uh, uh, UN group that deals with Palestinians, uh, both Japan and Germany doubled down. They ponied up, didn't they? They, they big time. Mm -hmm. Now, if I was speaking to the foreign minister right now, I would just say one thing. If Japan wants to continue, and maybe it should, uh, to help uh, Palestinians who are in need, by all means. But what they need to do, same message to Berlin as Tokyo, you need accountability, you need transparency. Right now, a lot of that money, especially when it comes to UNRWA and schools in Gaza, is going directly uh, to the control of Hamas, mm -hmm. which is a terrorist organization. So there, this is an area of uh, uh, concern. I think the issue here is not to get rid of UNRWA, but to reform it. And as it happens, uh, Tokyo, with its checkbook, has tremendous unused leverage. Mm -hmm. I think another area which remains unresolved is the insistence uh, on the part of the foreign ministry 
to treat the Golan Heights as quote-unquote occupied Syrian territory. Thank God for thousands and thousands of injured Syrians and the human rights activists that Israel is on the Golan Heights and was able to do amazing humanitarian things during the course of that horrible uh, civil war. And that mm -hmm. sort of 1980s mentality extends yes. uh, even to like uh, travel advisories to the West Bank or uh, East Jerusalem. People in Japan and elsewhere need to understand just by way of size, Israel is, with the West Bank is 120th the size of California. So you're not thinking about the states, about the size of New Jersey. There's no margin for error there. And if yes. young business people want to come and do business with Israel, mm -hmm. they can't come around with a GPS saying, I can't go on this block, I can't go there. So I think that the, with respect to the farm ministry, I know a lot of people there, they need a refreshing course mm -hmm. and they need to push the reset button on their website. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm sure somebody's gonna be doing that right away. It seems to me that Japan's foreign policy was largely not dictated, but guided by what the United States wanted because they were in this, this tight relationship. And with the oil embargo and with the, the, the war in, in the Middle East, Japan kind of figured out, we need our own foreign policy. We need to do it based on, on our own self-interest. And it seems that the, um, the Palestinians got the advantage when they made that decision. And that's a kind of decision that sometimes gets set in stone when you're defining you know, foreign policy. It's hard to change it once it's, it's set. And so th the work that you're doing and, and you're, you're coming to Japan and, and talking about these issues, I think is, is so important. But is there, do you notice this movement, this shift that's going forward? Well, there's a the massive change. Um, I go to Israel just there about uh, 10 days ago. It would be highly unusual to see any people from uh, Japan and now you see you know, young people in the streets with their iPhones and if they don't even know English or whatever, it'll push, how do I get to X, Y, or Z? Uh -huh. uh, I, I just hosted a, for the second time, from the second country, um, delegations from Gulf states, Arab states. I've hosted them in Jerusalem. The Holy Land sort of sells itself. When you go there, uh, it kind of belies all of the stereotypes. It's not a dangerous place to be. It's an inspirational uh, uh, and a fun place, really. And it's a very much, it's a young place again. So uh, I have uh, very high hopes that um, that kind of exchange would, uh, would be useful. But I think there might be another um, uh, strategy needs to be put in place. And it could be done theoretically from here in Japan or perhaps in, in uh, conjunction with us at the Wiesenthal Center. A, a bilingual traveling exhibition about our two cultures, mm -hmm. about our two people. A traveling museum. And in fact, something yes. along those lines in which um, you know, we've brought various exhibitions here. When we brought our Holocaust exhibition the first time, uh, then American ambassador, former vice president Walter Mondale, and the late Mrs. Sugihara cut the ribbon on an exhibition that was at the Shinjuku City Hall for 10 days, 82,000 Japanese I came. remember that. Yeah. So we know one thing, the curiosity is mm -hmm. there. And so the responsibility from people and institutions like the one I represent, as well as good people here who are involved with NGOs and soft power, is if we can simply now use social media and the internet 
uh, and other devices to replace the mythology of the Jew right. with the reality, That's right. then I think we'll be doing our children and grandchildren a great service. So I'm going to ask you uh, about the Weisenthal Center, but I think you just answered that. Who funds you? How do you, what, what, what is your, your, the breadth of, of activities that you're assigned to be doing? Well, I've been lucky. Uh, probably the only way I ever could have gotten a job is I helped found the place 41 years ago. <laughs> Um, our funding is primarily from private sources. We have about 400,000 members who voluntarily give us uh, uh, relatively modest sums. And then we also have a very strong relationship to the entertainment industry uh, in Hollywood. Um, many of them are uh, supportive of our work. And most importantly, the name Simon Wiesenthal. This is a man who lost 89 members of his family during World War II to a genocide. And his mantra for the rest of his life was justice, not revenge. Uh, that uh, reaching out to young people, using education, looking for convicted criminals and not martyrs for extremist causes. Mm -hmm. And also, something I learned from him over 29 years, uh, if you're concerned about genocide, you can't just talk about your own people. You have to be a, a much uh, broader mind. So you're talking about mass murder, human rights, I'm very proud of the fact I've been involved for 20 years with the North Korean Freedom Coalition. Very concerned uh, that there needs to be a voice. It's a long time ago. It's a long time standing, and now we have upcoming mm -hmm. uh, meeting again you know, with President Trump and North Korean leader. But wherever it takes place, we want to make sure that the folks who don't have a voice who are mm -hmm. suffering, that they're not just shunted aside and said, let's solve the uh, nuclear issue first and some decade we'll get back to it. That, that's something that we try to fight every day. You're also championing the Digital Hate Speech Coalition. There's, there's an initiative that you've started just recently, right? Well, actually, uh, although I don't understand technology, I understand a little bit about hatred. We, we uh, launched a quarter of a century ago a project called Digital Terrorism and Hate. In fact, March 14th, we'll come out with our annual report and something I have a lot of fun with, I have to admit, a report card. We actually grade Facebook and Twitter and VK.com in Russia and others mm -hmm. on the issue of what do you do about uh, the extremists who want to leverage your platform. Mm -hmm. uh, not to wait for uh, governments or lawsuits, but in your day-to-day -day operation. Are you watching it? Are you we're, monitoring We're watching it very, very mm -hmm. carefully. And I think the long range, and this is something I've lectured here about in Japan and Singapore, around the world, anywhere you have a democracy, well, those democratic values are under assault by extremists. Mm -hmm. How do we balance privacy, uh, intervention, and since I'm a, an American-born activist, I'm a big believer in trying to minimize the need to go to governments and try to maximize citizens, NGO, and soft power to lead the way. That's great. You were just recently in South Korea. There's a, a, a little bit of a, a kerfuffle going on there, isn't there? Well, we have, uh, it's interesting in Asia because uh, there is no real uh, history of anti-Semitism, not in India, not in China, not really in, J in Japan, maybe Malaysia for political reasons might be the only place. But uh, what we find, and it's been happening too often, is the embrace and utilization of Nazi imagery and symbols, the swastika used to sell- uh, Shock value. Yeah, right? shock value, but I think maybe for some 
you know, looking and hoping for that strong leader. And since they didn't experience Hitler or the genocide uh, here in Asia Pacific, you had tremendous disasters uh, here. Mm -hmm. So the whole notion of Hitler is a strong man and, and whatever. The bottom line is that we don't want it to become a cultural trend anywhere in Asia. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we had the opportunity to meet with some of the creative people uh, in, uh, in Korea to explain to them yet again. Uh, we've had the issue here with Sony Music in Japan to explain this is what happened during World War II. And most important, the swastika today is not a relic. It's a live uh, symbol for racists and bigots on both sides of the Atlantic. It and sure is, yeah. When you see those girls, uh, the teeny boppers who are wearing t-shirts with a swastika, mm -hmm. try to explain to people from Asia, if you walked around Berlin about 10 o'clock at night with that t-shirt, they beat the hell out of you because you're a person of color. Uh -huh. So if you have any idea of what Nazism actually represents, you'd be right out in front you know, against it, maybe uh, doing what you can to embrace the message of uh, Anne Frank or someone along those lines. So we have, we have some work to do, but again, we're especially inspired. I am also living uh, in, in California, is that as long as Japan is the democracy, that's our most natural ally here across the, this pond. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, we talk about markets and the, the big brother and China's look, yeah, they're big players, but in terms of, uh, of, re of alliances and, and friendships uh, and values, I think that's something that we can continue to develop together. You arrived just last night. You're here today and tomorrow. Thank you very much for making time to be on, on Tokyo on Fire. I really appreciate it. Hope you have me back. Yes, absolutely. What else is in store? You've got one more day here in Tokyo, then you're going back home. I'll be back in uh, Los Angeles. Actually, uh, at the end of November, I'll be in uh, what we call in the old days Burma, Myanmar, for my second Myanmar, visit. Right. We're going to be opening our UNESCO exhibition on the history of the Jewish people in that, in that country. So for us uh, at the Wiesenthal Center, and I think for Jewish people around the world, Asia is a very, very special place. Uh, it's always been almost exclusively a welcoming location and I hope that we can you know, help build, uh, do our share uh, from the vantage point of, of the United States and from Israel to build out uh, real relationships, real friendships. Welcome, please come back again. An honor. The relationship between Japan and the Jewish people is really significant, it's deep, it's historical. We're gonna to continue to follow that. Thank you very much for joining us. Please stay tuned as we delve into it further. Hi everyone, welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. Today is February 20th, 2019. Russia and Japan are still in very tense negotiations. The foreign minister has been meeting with the foreign minister of Russia. There is a lot of talk going on. Where are we right now? I am so happy to welcome back Dr. James Brown. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. You happen to be one of our most popular guests. You are articulate about an issue that's very complicated. It's very important for the Japanese people, apparently for the Russians as well. Where are we right now? Where are the negotiations going? Well, in Japan-Russia relations, often there's the sense that nothing really changes. But I think just at the moment, there is something really quite new. And that's after an agreement that was made in November last year. Uh, Putin and Abe met in Singapore, and they reached an agreement to accelerate talks based on the 1956 Joint Declaration. Now, that's significant because it actually represents a bit of a concession from the Japanese side. Now, you won't find Prime Minister Abe saying it 
openly, at least not yet. But it seems to be clear that by stressing that agreement, he's really decided that rather than trying to go for all four of the islands, which are under dispute, instead he's focused on just two. And the reason why we know that is because in the 1956 agreement, it only mentions two islands. Mm -hmm. The larger two islands of Iturup and Kunishir are not mentioned in that document whatsoever. It's only the smaller islands of Shikotan and Habomai. And so that seems to indicate that Abe has in mind to go for a two-island deal. They also agreed to a new framework for talks, which are being led by the foreign ministers, with the deputy foreign ministers also involved. So it does seem to be a new stage in these, in these talks. I like the, the, the tone and the tenor that is being pursued by a foreign minister, Kono, and it seems like this is really beginning to generate some sort of a, a gel at, at the diplomatic level but it seems like at the higher level there's, there's intransigence. Well, the hope was that after that agreement reached in November that there really would be acceleration. Mm -hmm. That's what the agreement was, to accelerate based on that agreement. But now we've had uh, two meetings between the foreign ministers, uh, the most recent of which happening in Munich on the sidelines of the security conference. We've also had a summit in Moscow on the 22nd of January. And really, it's pretty clear that whilst the Japanese side want to move forward quickly on this, the Russian side have an interesting interpretation of acceleration. Right. It seems to be actually uh, moving really quite slowly and raising a number of additional concerns that they have. Right. So I think the actual picture is that uh, the Japanese side at the moment are really quite disappointed by the fact that despite the agreement in November, despite the concessions from their side, which have also included new wording. They will no longer talk about the islands as being inherent Japanese territory. Right. Uh, they also won't talk about them being illegally occupied, which is the way they were previously described. Despite those things, the Russian side doesn't want to budge. It's not a good idea when you're at this stage of negotiations to have mistakes in interpretation, wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Yeah, so it, it, it seems that there's, there's maybe a willingness or an eagerness on one side that's not represented by the other. I think that there's just a fundamental disagreement on what the resolution of this is going mm -hmm. to be. That Prime Minister Abe um, still has significant hopes, it seems, that he has committed so many times to reaching an agreement on this issue before the end of his time in office. Um, and he also apparently is going for an outline agreement as soon as June. That's right. when uh, President Putin is due to, to visit Japan for the Osaka uh, G20 summit. And uh, that seems to be what Abe has in mind, but that just doesn't seem to be on the agenda at all for the Russian side. You know, I've been very hopeful too, especially recently with the negotiations and, and the maybe backing away the concession, as you said, of let's focus on the, the two islands. And I thought that was a, that was, um, a big move. Um, and he didn't suffer that much damage in, in Nagata-cho for doing that. Um, unfortunately, it seems like the, the issues have been split now between let's have a peace treaty and then let's talk about the islands, mm -hmm. right? It's not, we want to, to uh, separate those two issues. And the, for the Japanese, it's, they're integral. Absolutely. And uh, the Russian side for some time now has said that really what we have here is not so much a territorial issue, it's more a peace treaty issue. Right. And the Russian position, um, as set out in September last year by 
President Putin, um, is let's let's move to sign a peace treaty. Yes. And he said, let's sign a peace treaty by the end of the year. Without, let's just do it. Without conditions, right. yes. And actually, the Russians have always been willing to, to do that. There wasn't really a change. It's the Japanese side who says, no, no, we can't sign a peace treaty until we've settled sure. the status of those disputed islands. So when these talks take place, the Japanese side always wants to talk about the islands. And the Russian side says, no, I mean, our aim is a peace treaty and uh, our aim is to achieve as much economic cooperation as possible. So they, they really uh, are not, uh, well, they're talking past each other mm -hmm. still. That's unfortunate because um, I'm, I'm sure you, you probably know better than most people the tremendous potential that is available should these countries sign a peace treaty and have normal friendly relationships i mean the the sky is the limit what could what could happen between the two countries mm. well it's an interesting uh, point the the issue of potential there's no question there's enormous potential in this relationship the level of bilateral trade uh, which uh, last year was just a bit over 20 billion dollars that's not really very significant that's right. it's also well down on the level from 2013 when it was over 35 billion dollars so there is significant potential but really is that potential going to be unlocked by a peace treaty. Mm -hmm. But others argue that the real reason why Japanese companies don't invest in Russia has more to do with concerns about the, the legal environment, uh, about the profitability of investments there. And Japanese companies are famously risk averse. Right. At the moment, there already is no uh, state of war that was entered in the joint declaration. So others say, what actually would a peace treaty add? So I sometimes wonder whether if this were to be agreed, would there really be right. a flood of Japanese investment? I think not. I think that Japanese companies who have already judged that Russia is a good place to invest, they've already invested there, mm -hmm. like in the, the Sakhalin 2 project. Right. Well, I, I think I agree with the ambassador who said that the, the, the connections need to be at the, at the lower, at the personal level to begin to develop this, this true feeling of, of, of friendship and, and, and affinity. And I think it's lacking and it's been lacking artificially for a long time. But I think a couple of gestures would probably repair that, you know, cross exchanges of, of students and tourists and, and um, you know, trade routes, mm. that sort of thing. Yeah, and that seems to be something that uh, the Japanese prime minister has in mind, that after the summit in January, which I think the Japanese side were very disappointed about, it seems that Abe is considering ways to, to get things back on track. And one of the things that was reported recently in the newspaper uh, was that Japan is now willing to consider uh, cancelling the visa requirement for Russian visitors uh, for, for short-term visits. That's this big. is something that the Russian side has always wanted. Japan has been very reluctant. Now they're considering it. That would have, I think, a, a big, make a big contribution towards mm -hmm. uh, bilateral relations. Abe hopes that it perhaps might lead to concessions from the Russian side when it comes to the territorial issue. I think that's more doubtful. But overall, it would surely be a good thing. What do you think about this, though? Um, if Abe is unsuccessful and he finishes his term at some point in time, yes. a new prime minister comes in and has the same idea. He's going to be less enthusiastic about pursuing it after the experience that has been offered by the, the, the prime minister. I think that's exactly right. That prime Minister Abe has been so committed to this issue. He has made it a real priority of his foreign policy and he has tried everything yeah. to try and make progress on this. So if it comes to the end of his term in September 2021 
as we expect it to be, and no real progress has been achieved, I would fully anticipate that the next Japanese prime minister would come in, look at it and think, I'm not going to make the same mistakes. That so much energy, so much effort was put into it by Prime Minister Abe, it didn't work out. I think the next prime minister would think, essentially, this problem cannot be resolved. It's not worth making the effort again. Mm -hmm. Some of the, the assumptions that we make are based on information that we gather, that we receive as a, as a kind of a Western community, even, even uh, the Western press. Mm. And I think we are excluded from a lot of the press that's going on in, in the, the, the Russian Federation and, and uh, the, the news that people are reading there. But it struck me that the, the uh, level of resentment uh, to handing back these islands in Moscow mm -hmm. is, you know, it's a, it's a very heavy barometer uh, for uh, Russia to consider about handing over the, the islands. And it's something that was not really relevant or maybe revealed to me mm -hmm. until just recently. But apparently that runs very deep. Yeah. After that agreement that was reached in November to accelerate with the talks based on the 1956 agreement, there was a really significant backlash within Russia. There were protests um, held in the Sakhalin region, which administers the disputed islands. Which you also would in expect. Moscow. Yeah, but yeah. In Moscow is, is, is a different issue, and that's what, what took me a little yeah, bit off balance. Also in, in Moscow and in the Russian media, there were endless stories saying, no, we should not return an inch of... Uh, Russian territory. And what's interesting about that is that actually Russia's position had not changed. Uh, Putin, since uh, the beginning of the 2000s, has repeatedly said, we are willing to abide by the 1956 joint declaration. But until November last year, it was the Japanese side who always said, no, we want more. Mm -hmm. We want to talk about the other two islands as well. So what had happened is that now that Japan was willing to accept the 1956 agreement, more Russians realized what that document actually says. That in Article 9 of that document, it very clearly states that after the signing of a peace treaty, the two smaller islands of Shikotan and Habamite would be transferred. And I think lots of Russians didn't realize, mm -hmm. hang on a second, we have this commitment, and that's why there was this backlash. Mm -hmm. And uh, since then, there have been various surveys within Russia the latest of which was on the southern Kuril Islands, and it showed the, the population there, 96% of them are against transfer of yes. the islands to Japan. So that's yet another that's obstacle to a deal. Right, right. So it appears for sure that uh, President Putin will visit uh, Tokyo, or Osaka at least, in uh, June, and all of the vectors are coming to uh, a conclusion there. And after that, he might meet Putin again, it might accelerate the issue, but I think the Prime Minister is hoping that by that point we can sit down, we can sign something, or at least agree to um, a, a date certain for this peace treaty, which mm -hmm. everybody really wants, but it goes with conditions as well. Yeah, so all of the indications are that Prime Minister Abe had this hope that when Putin comes to Japan for the G20 summit at the end of June, that would be the time that they could uh, sign an outline agreement. Mm -hmm. So it might not actually finalize everything, but it would deal with are the most important issues here. So that's what Abe has had in mind. Now, with the disappointment of the talks in, in January, right. when Abe went to Moscow, but essentially they didn't really agree on anything, and now with the disappointment of that second meeting between Kono and Lavrov, which has just taken place in Munich, when again, no progress was made, there was talk about stormy exchanges, also Lavrov um, refused to agree to a timetable 
a fixed timetable for the talks, that indicates that maybe Abe's plans for, for June are not going to work out. So the question now is, is he going to give up on this? Right. I think not. Mm -hmm. I think that he's put so much energy and effort into it. He's met already 25 times with Putin. He's going to keep going. I think it's in a way more embarrassing for Abe if he says, I've failed. So instead, it'd be better to keep going with it. And if in the end he's timed out, he can say, well, you know, I gave it everything. And in the end, I ran out of time. Yes, he needs, he needs something significant because we've got elections coming up. We've got the coronation of the new emperor. There's a lot going on politically. Mm. And um, he wants to be, you know, remain prime minister. It always seems that that was too optimistic, that talk about holding um, uh, elections, not just for the upper house, but also the lower house, uh, following the, yes. uh, the the talks in, in June, and in some way having a boost to Abe's popularity Which as a result of that, that seems very, very optimistic. Mm -hmm. uh, and now that seems very much off the table. Okay, but it's not going to be a wash, don't you agree? That even if it, it doesn't come, if it's a stalemate, it doesn't mean that everything is just going back to status quo. There, there are certain things that have happened that have a positive uh, beneficial uh, effect for, for both countries. Sure. I mean, when we talk about Japan-Russia relations, we always end up talking about this territorial issue. But it's just one issue right. in a really important relationship. These countries are close, close neighbours. They have many things to talk about. And even if the territorial issue is frankly never resolved, there will still be opportunities for cooperation, especially economically, but also just kind of people-to-people -people exchange, politically, and to an extent in terms of security as well. Right. Can we talk a little bit about LNG? Sure. So uh, the, apparently the, the two... Uh, massive Japanese corporations are working on a, a, a facility to produce LNG in uh, Sahalin Island. Is that right? So there's an existing agreement which has um, been in operation for some time. The Sahalin 2 project where two companies, uh, Mitsubishi and Mitsui, uh, are invested and that is operational. What's happened now is that Novatech, a large uh, private Russian uh, energy company, is pushing for those same two companies, Mitsubishi and Mitsui, to invest in a new project in the Russian far north, a new project on the Yamal Peninsula called uh, Arctic LNG-2. And um, that would be a huge investment. And the suggestion is that the Japanese government has, suggest, has uh, said that they would um, support that investment, perhaps providing up to half of the financing. So that would be a huge step forward in economic relations. The Abe administration would hope that that right. would get the territorial talks back on track. But the question is, is that actually going to be profitable or not? Mm -hmm. You know, one of the stumbling blocks whenever you talk about the return of the two islands is the presence of the uh, U.S. bases in Okinawa. And assuming there was a return of some of the territory, that the Americans would also kind of piggyback onto that. And it seems to me that that seems to be a really big sticking point for, for the Russians because they don't want to be absolutely cornered in. Sure. And if there was an agreement that, no, we will never do that, we'll never touch that. I, I don't know if something like that mm -hmm. could actually be uh, implemented. But it seems to be that, that that is one of the fears of the, the, the Russians as well, don't sure. you think? I mean, uh, uh, when, when Russian leaders look at Japan, one of the first things they see is a U.S. ally. They know that the U.S. has a huge amount of leverage over Japan, and that means that their level in, of trust in Japan will always be mm. limited. Mm -hmm. So when they talk about the possibility 
of the transfer of these two islands, they are very worried that that could mean that US bases could appear on there. Now, frankly, I don't think the US military really wants to put a base there, but even the possibility of that occurring is unacceptable for the Russian side. So they would need a strong commitment. Abe, reportedly, has promised Putin he would never allow US facilities there. But it seems that the Russian side, well, they know Abe's not going to be there forever. Also, the US has all of this leverage. They could force the hand of right. a Japanese prime minister. So they would need something more secure. They would need a legal guarantee, perhaps excluding those two islands from the US-Japan security treaty. Yeah, it makes it, you think that if you were Russia, you might think long and hard about that though, well, right? There's also the possibility that Russia is using this as uh, an issue to stir up a little bit of tension between mm -hmm. Japan and the United States. Yeah. Russia sees um, the alliances that the US has as a strength right. for Washington thereby any way of perhaps weakening those alliances might help with Russia's cause. Well, here on the, the show, we are, we're constantly examining the relationship between Japan and the United States and the, the status of forces agreement and, and how uh, Japan benefits from that, but also how the prime minister wants to have a stronger country. He wants to have a military force. And this tension that, that exists there, it's, it's really a delicious mix. Yeah, and the US-Japan relationship remains the cornerstone yep. Uh, Japan is certainly building up its own forces. It is looking for new security partners, but that is a supplement to the relationship with the United States, not to replace it. Right. So that's the picture of Japan-Russian relationships as it stands right now. President Putin will visit Japan in about four months. Please stay tuned because we're going to watch it too.